You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. The feeding of the 5,000, which you just heard read, is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Even people who don't read the Bible, people who don't believe in the Bible, have probably heard this this story before. It's the only miracle of Jesus that's mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk, tell this story. Isn't that interesting? It's not Jesus walking on water. It's not him casting out demons. It's not him calming the storm. It's not raising Lazarus from the dead, which is a pretty awesome one. Uh, But this is the only one that all four of them cover that made the final cut in all their edits. And that probably tells us something. The gospel writers want us to know something here, something about Jesus, but I think more significantly in this particular account, something about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because I don't know if you noticed, but the disciples are front and center in this miracle. They, they got a front row seat. They, they are even involved in participating in the work of Jesus in this miracle in ways that they aren't in others. It's, it's almost as if this miracle is meant especially for them. Yes, Jesus feeds lots of hungry people, but at a deeper level, he's instructing his disciples. He's teaching them. And in doing so, he's teaching us because we're disciples of Jesus too. We have, as a church, been looking at the gospel of Luke since before Christmas, since the the season of Advent began. And Luke chapter nine, this chapter, marks the end of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. He's wrapping it up in Galilee, and this feeding of the 5,000 kind of is one of the last things that happens. In the coming weeks, uh, in, in, in two weeks, in fact, when we transition into the season of Lent, Jesus is going to, to set his face resolutely to head toward Jerusalem. It says that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, right at the end of this chapter. And that will be a transition in the gospel of Luke. And the rest of the gospel of Luke will be Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, where he will die, where he will be raised from the dead, and where he will ascend to heaven. To, to use the language of Luke 9, 51, he will be taken up. And so he is going away really soon, which means it's time for his disciples to learn how to carry out his mission once he's gone. Because once he's gone, he's not gonna just shut down his ministry and his mission. He's gonna carry out his ministry by multiplying it through his disciples, which he does in our text today. But they still have a lot to learn about Jesus. They have a lot to learn about what it means to minister in the name of Jesus. There are three scenes, three parts to our story today. Uh, First, there's a mission trip. Uh, Then there's a ministry retreat. And then there's the miracle, right? The mission trip, the ministry retreat, and then the miracle. And I think each of these scenes reveal something about who Jesus is, and they reveal something about ourselves, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But you don't get the whole revelation until the end of the story. That's when it all comes together, right at the very end. All right, so let's start with the mission trip in verses one through six. 
Jesus sends his 12 disciples on a short-term mission trip so they can get some real-life ministry experience. Look at verse 1 and 2 in Luke chapter 9. If you want to turn there, if you don't have a Bible and want to turn there, there's some black Bibles there in the pews. It's on page 841 in those Bibles. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. It says that Jesus called the 12 together, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, and he gave them power and authority over all demons. He gave them power and authority to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In other words, he sent them out to do the exact same things he had been doing, preaching the gospel and healing. Uh, he, he, it's like he tosses them the keys to the car and he says, hey, take my ministry out for a spin. <laughs> take my ministry out for a test drive. I'm not even going with you, but I'm gonna give you the power and the authority to do it. My youngest daughter, Sophie, got her driver's license on Thursday. Pretty awesome. It was pretty nerve wracking too, but she passed and it was great. Uh, and, and I told her, I was like, hey, as a driver, you are now entrusted with incredible power. Like you're in control of a 4,500 pound vehicle that goes really fast, right? And, and you essentially have freedom to go wh wherever you want. And I said, with great power comes great responsibility. And she's like, are you really gonna drop the Spider-Man line on me? And I'm like, absolutely. It applies here. She, Sophie has new power, but listen, she also has authority. She's now officially licensed to use that power. That's what's happening here. That's what the disciples have. They have the power of Jesus and they're licensed to use that power. It says they have power over all demons. That's incredible. Over all spiritual forces of darkness, just like we saw with Jesus last week when he cast out a legion of demons. He's given them that kind of power. It says they have power over disease and sickness, just like we've seen with Jesus throughout his ministry. And with that power and authority, they are to go and proclaim the kingdom of God, that the kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus, and they are to heal people as a sign that the kingdom has arrived. They're not the king, but they're official emissaries, ambassadors, delegates of the king, and so their words carry the same weight as the words of Jesus, and their actions are just as powerful as Jesus' because he's given them his power and authority. Now, what are the arrangements for this trip? How should they prepare for this trip? Like anytime you go on a short-term mission trip, if our church is going to Guatemala or somewhere, we, we make plans, right? We, we buy plane tickets, we, we, we set up lodging and transportation on the other side, uh, we, we, there's a packing list. There's all sorts of things to prepare. What should the disciples do to prepare for this trip? Look at verse three. Jesus said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. What's the packing list? No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no change of clothes. I can't even go on an overnight trip without taking a bag. I took a bag to the men's retreat 
It was like 18 hours, right? I took my pillow also. Got to have my pillow. But that's not what Jesus tells the disciples here. He doesn't tell them pack light. He says pack nothing, which is interesting because this won't be normative for all future mission trips in the Bible. Jesus in other times tells them to take a bag, take supplies. So, so what's going on here? Why bring nothing now? Like, what's the point? I think the point is, hey, I want y'all to learn to trust me in a radical way. I'm not only giving you the power for this trip, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the provision, all that you need for it. I will provide everything you need. Don't rely on your own resources. Rely on me. It's interesting, later in, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is gonna come back to this and he's gonna remind them about this trip and, and, and he's gonna say, y'all remember that time I sent you out with no money and no bag and no, no nothing? And they're like, yeah. And he goes, did you lack anything? And they're like, nothing, we lack nothing. You totally provided for us on that trip. Look what happens, verse six. And they departed and they went through the villages proclaiming the gospel and teaching everywhere. They went to all the places Jesus wanted them to go and they did all the things in those places that Jesus wanted them to do. They, pre- they preached the gospel and they healed people. The trip was a total success. And I think we should be so encouraged by what happens here. Because Jesus' plan all along was to multiply his ministry through imperfect people. Like he, he doesn't hold on to his ministry trying to keep all the glory to himself. He shares his power. He shares his authority with, with frail and flawed disciples like you and me. And then he works through them, giving them everything they need to do all that he calls them to do. Second Corinthians 3. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Second Corinthians chapter four, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? It's the gospel. It's the knowledge of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We contain that treasure in a frail, broken, brittle container. Why? to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, Jesus shares his ministry with us, but the power comes from him. The authority comes from him. The provision comes from him, and he's the point of anything we say or do. He is all we have to offer people. We don't offer ourselves. We offer Jesus, just like the disciples did when they went out. Now, look what happens when they come back from this mission trip. Jesus takes them on a little ministry retreat after they get back from the trip. It's a little time of rest and debriefing. Look at verse 10. Look at the retreat. This is where it begins. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart. He retreated to a town called Bethsaida, uh, probably on the outskirts of Bethsaida. So the disciples get back and they are so pumped. I mean, how could you not be? They've been casting out demons. They've been healing people. Chronically ill people have been coming up to them and thanking them for making them well. Entire villages have been flocking to them 
and, and, and asking for help. They've been like little heroes traveling around, like little saviors come to town. It, 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 would, it would be so easy to get cocky with that kind of success, to kind of get arrogant, to, to, to start feeling a little bit self-important and self-sufficient. And maybe the disciples started feeling this way because in verse 10, it says they're telling Jesus about everything they had done. Did you catch that? Like Jesus, listen to all the things that we did. We did this, then we did this, and then we did this. Now, maybe they're just reporting the bare facts, but their report seems to be tinged with a little bit of self-sufficiency, doesn't it? Like, you know, Jesus, this whole ministry thing, I think we got it. I think we got this. It's pretty easy. It was, we were great out there. So Jesus pulls them out to a remote place to rest, to reflect. He wants to give them a retreat away from the demands of the crowd, but also away from the applause of the crowd because the applause is kind of like adrenaline to the disciples. But the retreat does not last very long. Look at verse 11. It says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. So people from all over the region found out where Jesus was going and they followed him there. Thousands of people, it tells us, followed him there. It was supposed to be a private retreat, but one writer says it turned into church camp with activities all day long from, from the time, you know, before sunup to sundown. It's exhausting, right? So what does Jesus do when everybody, when this huge crowd shows up? Well, he does what Jesus does. Continuing in verse 11, look what it says. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus doesn't get annoyed when the people found him. He welcomes them. Don't you love that? I love that. Listen, if you showed up at my house tonight unannounced when I'm trying to rest from after a long day of church work, I'd like to think that I would welcome you, but I don't know, right? It'd be through gritted teeth. I was reading this, and I was like, I got a long way to go to be like Jesus. He welcomes them. Jesus is never annoyed when you come to him with your needs. He always welcomes, and he always does what Jesus does. He speaks about the kingdom of God, which is accessible for everyone, and he heals he brings a balm to our souls, like he meets our needs. He attends our hurts. He attends our hearts. He welcomes and he ministers. He welcomes and he ministers. That's what Jesus does. And he's ministering all day in this story to this particular crowd to the point where it's getting late. It's getting towards dinner time. Look at verse 12. It says, now the day began to wear away and the 12 disciples came and said to Jesus, send the crowd away to go into surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place, a remote place. We're here out here in the wilderness. So now that the disciples have become big time ministry experts after their <laughs> successful tour in Galilee, they're, kind of, they're, they're like, well, we're gonna tell Jesus what to do. They, they all of a sudden feel free, the freedom to give Jesus some directions, tell him how to do his ministry. Isn't that interesting? In, in, in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus had sent them out. He was the commander, and now they're commanding Jesus. It's amazing how abrupt they are. 
with Jesus. You read the first part of Luke, and usually when they address him, they use the term master or the term Lord as a sign of respect, but not here. They don't call him Lord. They don't call him master. They just start barking orders at him, giving him advice about what to do as if he is unaware of the situation. Like, Jesus, we're out here in the sticks. People are hungry. People need dinner. Send Send them somewhere to find dinner. And so in verse 13, he answers them. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Like, okay, ministry experts, you, you feed the crowd. Apparently, you've had great success caring for the needs of people all over Galilee. Do that again, right here, right now. You feed the people. And you gotta hand it to the disciples. They actually try to problem solve this thing. Look at verse, look at, continuing in verse 13. They said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, so they're given an account of what they got, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. It's more than 5,000 people. They're like, we do have these five loaves and we've got these two fish, or maybe we could you know, scrounge up enough money to head into town and, and, and buy some dinner for, for everyone, I don't know. So they immediately start thinking in terms of their own ability, their own resources, their own uh, means. The only option that they don't think of is to ask Jesus, if he can help with this. They don't think, hey, Jesus, you know what? Can you feed this crowd? Would you feed this crowd? The Lord Jesus himself is standing right in front of them and they're whiteboarding the thing within their own abilities, their own ingenuity and resources. And when I read this, I thought, you know, the disciples are a lot like Israel in the Old Testament. Remember, Israel in the Old Testament, they had seen God's power They had seen his mighty works and his ability up close in Egypt and at the Red Sea, but they quickly forgot about those things, didn't they? Like Psalm 78 says this about Israel. They rebelled against the most high God in the wilderness. They willingly put God to the test by demanding the food that they craved, and they spoke against God, and this is what they said. Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Can God really feed a bunch of people in a remote place? I mean, they said, true, he struck the rock and water gushed out, but can he give us bread? See, the disciples had been with Jesus throughout his ministry. They'd seen his power, like power to heal diseases, power to reverse paralysis, power to calm a storm, power to cast out demons, power to forgive sins. Even power to raise a little girl from the dead, which is what happens right at the end of chapter eight. They'd seen that, but it doesn't even cross their mind that he he might be able to spread a table in the wilderness. Instead, they look to their own resources. They look to their own abilities. They're trying to be self-sufficient, but they come up short. They come up way short. I think with this simple command that Jesus gives them when he says, you give them something to eat, he reveals their insufficiency. He reveals something that's true of all of us as disciples, and that's this. We are never self-sufficient for life and ministry. We never get to the point where it's like, I got this in life and ministry. Like our resources are severely deficient to meet the needs of a hungry world, aren't they? Our resources are severely 
deficient to even fill our own deepest hungers, aren't they? And yet, oftentimes, we're just like the disciples. We're trying to minister to others and and help people with complex problems, but we're just kind of digging in our pocket, like searching for what changed, and we're kind of like, well, that's not going to be enough. (laughs) That's not going to cover it. Or we're trying to figure out the needs of our own life with just, you know, five loaves of bread and a couple fish. And we're wondering, why am I so unsatisfied? Why do I still feel hungry? And all the while, Jesus is standing right in front of us. Why don't we go to him? Like, why is Jesus not always our first option? Like, Jesus, can you feed them? Jesus, can you help me? Jesus, can you fill me? I don't have enough, can you help me? And the answer that Jesus gives is yes. Jesus says, I can take your not enough and make it more than enough. And that's what happens here. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says to the disciples, have the people sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, they had them all sit down. Jesus is like, I got this, I got you. So we come to the miracle. Here's the miracle, verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to to set before the crowd. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses the bread, or gives thanks for it, he breaks it, and he gives it. This is what he does for us every week in communion, isn't it? Because this is what he did for the life of the world. He took his body, he consecrated it. His body was broken, and then he gave his body for the life of the world. It's the very nature of Jesus to give himself away so that others can live. This miracle in Luke chapter nine is just a preview of how Jesus will ultimately feed the world. And this is a true miracle that happens here. Sometimes people try to explain away what happened here. Like what really happened was Jesus shared the little bit of food that they had and his example of sharing inspired the crowd to share the food that they were kind of holding on to too. So the real miracle was like in their hearts, right? No, that's not the real miracle that happened here. Sharing is a good thing, but that's not what's happening here. In John's account, in John chapter six, Jesus is just making bread. And it says the crowd knows exactly what's happened because in John chapter six, the crowd says, this is the prophet that we've been waiting on. And they, try, they want to make him king because they're like, we've never seen anything like this. It's not actually all that hard to believe that Jesus would make bread, is it? If he's the one through whom all things were created, it says in John 1 and Colossians 1, he made all things. It's not that hard to believe that he could take a little bit of bread and make a lot of bread. And that's what happens here. It says in verse 16, look at it. Verse 16, it says, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. It literally says that word gave, the tense on that verb is he kept giving bread to the disciples. He kept giving. What a scene this is. The disciples keep coming back to Jesus. He keeps giving them bread, and then they keep giving it to the crowd. They come back to Jesus. He gives them bread. 
they go and give it to the crowd. So who's feeding the crowd? Jesus or the disciples? Yes. <laughs> They're feeding the crowd. The crowd experiences the provision of God through the disciples. And what is so gracious of Jesus here is that the disciples are actually doing the very thing he told them to do when he said, you give them something to eat. They're giving them something to eat, but they're, they're doing it through the provision of Jesus, not through their own means. We can only give people what we receive from Jesus. That's ministry. We can only give people what we receive from Jesus. He's the source. We're merely the conduit of what he gives. Watch how this thing ends. Verse 17. It says in verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. A couple things to see in this last verse. Number one, everybody ate and everybody was full. Jesus didn't leave anybody hungry. Jesus didn't leave anyone wanting more. Why? Because he's the only one who can truly satisfy. Not just with a meal, right? With everything we need for our lives. The next day after this, in John's account, Jesus said this to the crowd. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus came to satisfy not just our physical hunger, but our deepest hungers. Second thing that you see in this verse is that they picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread after the miracle. When, you remember when God fed Israel in the wilderness with manna? They would only have enough manna for each day. They only have enough day or bread for each day. But that's not what happens here. Jesus does a lot more. There's lots of leftover. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I want to give you a picture of what I came to do. I came to bring life abundantly. I came to give you more than you could ever imagine. And I don't think it's a coincidence that there were 12 baskets left over, one for each of the 12 disciples. What grace toward his disciples that he would do that for them. It's a visual reminder to the disciples that when they were insufficient, Jesus was abundantly sufficient. Where they were not enough, Jesus is more than enough. It's something they'll have to come back to again and again and again, and so do we as disciples of Jesus. Jesus is abundantly sufficient for everything in life and ministry. That's the big reveal. That's, that's, that's what the end of the story reveals to us. Jesus is abundantly sufficient for everything we need in life and ministry. The communion meal um, is in many ways a picture of this story. It, it gives us a weekly taste of the abundant sufficiency of Christ. In, in John chapter six, which I've mentioned a few times, Jesus said this. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my body. One of the primary ways we express our faith in Jesus is by feasting on him in communion at this table. In taking communion, we're saying that we hunger for Jesus above all other things. We're saying that Jesus is our sustenance. Jesus is our life. We're saying that he is abundantly sufficient to meet our deepest hungers. 
on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He did uh, take bread and he gave thanks for it. He said a blessing over it. Uh, And then uh, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat of this. This is my body given for you. In the same way, he took a cup and passed it around to his friends and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was saying, that his abundant sufficiency to his disciples, which includes us, would come through his death and then his resurrection. And this meal is just a tiny taste of that to remind us of his grace toward us. Let's thank him for this meal. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.